Welcome back to the Eye on the Tigers podcast. I am Dave Matters, St. Louis Post-Dispatch, stltoday.com, the zoo beat writer. We're joined, as always, by Ben Fredrickson, Post-Dispatch, stltoday.com, columnist. We've got a lot of football to talk about. Missouri coming off a, off a win. They finally break that two-game skid. It felt like they had been forever since they, since they won a game. And they've got a big one coming up. It became much bigger the way that Texas A&M uh, what they did over the weekend beating Alabama. We'll get into all that. We'll also chat with former Missouri offensive coordinator Dave Christensen. Uh, he is retired these days, living out in Arizona. I don't know how we found him. and He wasn't on the golf course, but he uh, he took a break between between rounds and, and visited. Uh, he's also you know one of the few coaches that have coached at both Missouri and Texas A&M. He spent a year with the Aggies when they were in the SEC under uh, under Kevin Sumlin. So we went down memory lane a little bit, talked about some of the Mizzou glory years. And then, uh, you know, just kind of the, the state of the game, you know, as an offensive coordinator, he was kind of at the forefront of the spread offense at Missouri. And now that that's evolved a lot. So we had a good chat, but, but first Ben, uh, let's talk a little bit about these tigers and, you know, they had a, a nice win. At this point, you take anything you can get, you know, I don't think anybody would have been impressed at the beginning of the season, giving up 35 points to North Texas, but a win's a win at this point, and they they play better on on defense. But you know, no one's uh no one's going to give Steve Wilkes an extension or anything after that game. No, a win's a win, man. And you you avoided checking the box you can't check if you're Eli Drinkwitz, which is the awful homecoming loss box. Um, yeah. it, it's happened. It happened to Barry Odom. Um, you know, the Middle Tennessee loss was tragic, and you know, some would say he had a hard time bouncing back from that. I don't think it was what. Austin. I mean, they did some of his, his biggest wins came later, but people, every time there's a bad loss, that one got brought up. So you got to avoid those losses. Um, and, and Eli did, uh, and the Tigers did. So, you know, uh, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being Pollyanna here or else I'm just tired of sounding like a broken record saying bad things about the defense. I thought there were some, some encouraging signs uh, yeah. against North Texas. Now in the second half where you know, things got weird. Yeah, that's not good. Um, way closer of a game than it should have been. But in the first half where the game was really decided, I, I thought there were some good things. I mean, some of the guys who got uh, an opportunity to play, some of the new starters I thought played well. I thought the defensive line looked more engaged, looked, you know, more more awake and, and more effective. So those are good things. I mean, you want to see a positive response when you make a change at position coach. And and you did. And, and we saw some guys who might, you know, make more of a, an effect later in the season who are now getting an opportunity to play. I know it just wasn't the defensive side, Dave, but I, I like what, what Drinkwoods did where he said, look, we're going to tear up the depth chart and you're going to have to earn it in practice every week. There's no, there's no one on this defense that has really earned the right to just walk in on Saturday and start if they don't, if they don't show up at practice, um, you know, all week they've got to they've got to kind of earn that weekly and I like that kind of mentality it should make I think for a hungrier group out there so verdict still very much out on Wilkes second half was disappointing and how how they kind of folded a little bit with some at times some different guys on the field there but uh, overall I, I think it was a small step forward for the defense I don't know if it's going to mean much against A&M we will we'll see right right yeah a couple thoughts on the defense you know I they gave up some big plays in the pass against the pass in the second half. Um, Missouri was up 41, 14 at that point, you know, so yeah, they probably took their foot off the gas a little bit. This team really is not accustomed to having a lead like that in the second half for one, 
They did go to the bench a little bit. But part of the reason North Texas started to throw was Missouri did a really nice job against the run in, in the first half. Um, held them to about, I don't know, a little less than three yards per carry, I think. The nation's number three leading rusher didn't really get much going. Uh, I thought the D-line was getting more penetration than they have all year. Granted, it's against North Texas, but the bar is really low at this point. When you're the worst in the country against the run, anything you do well is, is progress. Uh, I thought Trajan Jeffcoat was was visible for once. He, he had a role in, in two of the – both interceptions. He really impacted the quarterback on the first one that Chris Abrams' drain uh, picked off. He obviously tipped the other one that Makai Wingo snatched and rumbled 40 yards to the end zone for. So uh, he was the first name that Steve Wilkes brought up. Yes, we did. We got to interview Steve Wilkes uh, on Tuesday. Right. So progress That's all correct. around. Progress yeah. all around. He said Jeffcoat was a leader all week in practice. He thought he was much more engaged in the game um, and, and you know, had, had a role in that. So it was good to see him do something. Talking to a couple of the D linemen on Tuesday, it was Jeff Coat and Isaiah McGuire, and they were asked a lot of questions about what was different. And they, and I don't know if this is just, um, you know, kind of cliche or what, but they just talked about the energy. They said there was so much more energy in practice, so much more energy before the game. I sort of interpreted that as, um, you know, maybe a credit to Al Davis, who got them a little more fired up. Uh, maybe they just kind of waltzed into this season thinking, hey, we got it made. We're a bunch of older guys. We've done this before. It'll be pretty easy. And, you know, you've, you've got you've to gotta create that kind of energy on your own. It, it should be a given. You think, okay, you're a college scholarship player. You're a starter in the SEC. You should be excited about this. But, you know, maybe not. Maybe, they, maybe they're not necessarily self-starters on that line. So I, I think it was a positive. I don't, again, you know, it's like Eli Drinkwood said after the game, although it was a good quote, Nobody thought overnight they turned into the 85 Bears. Uh, I think playing Chad Bailey, and I wrote about this today, you know, I think him going playing over Blaze Aldridge looked like a positive, just a much more physical downhill type SEC linebacker. And I thought that made a difference. So we'll see if it pays off uh, down the road, if this is a, kind of a mirage or if this was maybe, hey, this they tapped into something here and and they can actually improve. Uh, obviously, a much bigger test coming on Saturday with Texas A&M. You know, I, I think the decision to, to play Bailey over Aldridge is a big one. Um, you know, that's not easy to do um, for a coach to say, okay, we brought this guy in, a graduate transfer. He's the face of the defense. He was so celebrated entering the season. He hadn't played well. Um, and, and it was costing the defense. He wasn't the only problem by right. far, but he hadn't played great. And he was struggling to get off blocks. He was struggling to make tackles he should make. So Drinkwitz and, and, and Wilkes, you know, they show some, I think, some, some humility. Okay, let's give Chad Bailey a shot. Not only are you hopefully getting a better linebacker for that game, they did, I, I think. You're also getting a guy who's going to help you next season. I mean, Aldridge isn't walking through that door next year. So if he's – every snap you give him where he's not as good as Chad Bailey, then you're not, you're not only – not only a worse defense this season, you're one a worse one next season because Bailey's got another year of eligibility left, so he could help you next year. Right. Um, so you're actually helping next season by playing a guy who, if he can play better now, then he's going to be able to play even better later. That's kind of how you hope college football works. So I think that's a smart call, and I, and I think a lot of coaches at times would just stick with the guy that they felt like they had to. Um, so that's kind of what I mean by tearing up the depth chart. I like that they're actually making some changes. How often do we hear coaches say, hey, you know, we're gonna we're gonna 
the depth chart's wide open. No one's position is secure, yet you see the same guys all the time. Right. And it's got a lip service. This doesn't seem to be lip service. And 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 I I, I think what you said about the run game is the run defense is really important. We said at the very beginning, after you watch this defense a couple of games, they're not going to lead the nation in anything. They're not going to be at the top of the charts. But what they have to do is be strong enough against the run that they can force teams into undesirable down and distances. And they do have a knack for creating turnovers, especially in the passing game. We saw that again against North Texas. So, yeah, if you give up some passing yards because the team's trying to catch up late, that's okay in my book, especially if you're picking a few of them off. And if you're turning them into touchdowns, that's how this defense can help this offense win football games. Yeah, nine takeaways in six games that matches Mizzou's total from last year. So that, that's a positive. I, I thought it was interesting, too. They got they, they got a strip. Uh, receiver caught the ball. They stripped it. Uh, Chris Abrams drained, fell on it for a second takeaway. And he said after the game, that was a coaching point we saw in film that they're really loose. Certain players on North Texas offense were really loose holding the ball and um, they went after it. So you got, you know, we called out Steve Wilkes. Everyone did all for a month about how bad this defense was. Well, that's good coaching. That's, that's good execution. And, uh, and they got it done. Now the second half, not great. Uh, He pointed that out. Wilkes did this week, obviously some coverage busts. Uh, We haven't really seen that this year but did on Saturday. So that's something they got to clean up. And now you move on to A&M and I'd say a week ago, I would have thought, okay, I think Missouri's got a, a chance here because A&M is the most disappointing team in the country, yeah. the country, the conference, maybe the country, because they were a top 10 team. If you put, if you rank it by coaching salary, they were. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> you know, they, they, they're lucky, very fortunate to beat Colorado 10 to seven, lose to Arkansas, get pushed around, by Barry Odom's defense and, and that offensive line. And then just all out of sorts against Mississippi State. And those three games, they failed to get 300 yards of offense. Quarterbacks hurt. Uh, Jimbo's got that extension and that raise. But, you know, <laughs> the more they struggle, the more his name seems to come up for the LSU job that could be open here soon. Just looked like, okay, this is a disaster season for the Aggies. And then what do they do? They go out and they beat Alabama, knock off the number one team in the country, the defending national champions, rush the field uh, at Kyle Field. And now they look like the team we thought they would be going into the season. Somehow, though, only an eight and a half point favorite at Missouri. So I guess Vegas is counting on A&M, you know, having a letdown, which is natural, especially for a team that is that's been probably more bad than good this year. But here they are at four and two and number 21 in the country. What do, what do you make of these Aggies, Ben? I think it's pretty odd to be one and two in SEC play and your one win is against Alabama. I mean, this yeah. is a this is a now an AM team that they scored 10 points against Arkansas. And they yeah. go and, and they can drop 41 on, on Alabama. It's it's hard to wrap your, your brain around and the <laughs> it just doesn't. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. And the other, the other thing that doesn't make a lot of sense, and it's hard to figure out, and I think I'm reading this right, this trip to Missouri, and this might deal with the spread, Dave, it's their first road trip of the season? They, they played Arkansas in Jerry World. Yeah, so that's a glorified, yeah. glorified home game. And, I, I mean, they, don't, uh, they haven't really been on the road at all, so it is kind of a strange game. I don't know what to make of A&M, clearly. 
I initially going into the season thought they might upset Alabama. And then I laughed at myself for being so wrong about that take before the Alabama game. And we, we made our, when we made our picks, I, I picked them to, I picked them to get routed by Alabama and then they go out and win. I could see a super confident A&M team that, that doesn't lose the rest of the season. I could see an A&M team that that becomes their high watermark and they just kind of fade, fade away um, from that. Cause they spent all, they spent the week taking, you know, victory laps about beating Alabama. And, and I don't know, I mean, they've got a very manageable schedule the rest of the way. So if they kind of wanted to do that, that uh, Barry Odom, Hey, finish on a hot streak finish. They, they have it kind of teed up for them right there. They got to play Auburn and Ole Miss. Um, but if you beat Alabama, you should be able to beat those teams. So look, I don't know what to think about this, this A&M team. I wish I had a, I wish I had a better read on it, but flip a coin on kind of if you're going to get the team that scored 10 against Arkansas or the team that dropped 41 against the defending champs. I have, I have no clue. Yeah. Yeah. Who, who knows? Yeah. They also had a, a neutral side game technically against Colorado. That was Colorado. That was in Denver, not Boulder. Right. That, still. That, that makes sense. Yeah. So that's why they, they haven't played a true road game yet. Um, if you didn't watch any college football this year and only watched last week's Alabama A&M game, you would have come out of there thinking A&M's the best team in the country and that Zach Calzada was the Heisman front runner. I mean, this is the guy who came into the season as, a, as the backup to Haynes King. King gets hurt in that Colorado game. This offense was lifeless in the uh, Arkansas-Mississippi State game. Calzada looked overmatched. Offensive lines, very young. Josh Henson's the O-line coach for Missouri coordinator. He did a great job with their line last year, but they lost some big pieces some big time playmakers were, were really underwhelming. Isaiah Spiller, the running back. Anaya Smith is a really dangerous receiver. Jalen Weidermeyer is one of the best tight ends in the country. They just weren't, they were doing squat. But then they come out against Alabama and Calzada looked like the best quarterback in the SEC. It was crazy. And that's so. And, and Eli Drinkwitz was asked this if, if AM, now they're talented, they're super talented, they recruit really well under Jimbo. If they can flip a switch like that against the best team in the country, or maybe the second best team, third best, I think Georgia's first best, the best right now. Can Missouri do that? Can you flip a switch like that? I don't know. I mean, they've got talent. They were they were definitely, uh, you know, not living up to the talent on the field. But then when the, the stage was, the spotlight was the brightest on the biggest stage, they came through and lived up to everything we thought they should be. And better, better. I don't. Any team can go down any week in, in this conference. I mean, there's, there's Missouri doesn't have the talent of A and M, but you don't have to. If you have a better game plan, if you have one guy rise above, if you have another team not show up. I mean, some teams they they don't they almost snooze through the first half of eleven a.m. starts. Um, this is going to be quite a different atmosphere for A and M going from that massive game, um, biggest game in the country, to an eleven a.m. kickoff in Columbia. Right. The energy, it's going to be one of those create your own energy games. And and maybe there isn't as much in the tank there. So, I mean, we've, we've seen too many crazy upsets to say that that something could happen. Now, for Missouri, flipping a switch and sustaining it is going to be a problem with right. this defense. But one thing that would really kind of, I think, sweeten up a disappointing season would be a an LSU-type win where they jump up and smack somebody no one expected them to. And that would – that would really uh, help Drinkwitz kind of get the positivity rolling. Not that people are going crazy or jumping off the bandwagon or anything like that, but 
you know, there would be, it would be a good time to have a, a big win against a team that no one saw coming. I am worried about this Isaiah Spiller though. I mean, the guy's averaging basically six yards, six yards per rush. Um, He's got that body type of a running back that this team has trouble tackling. He's shorter and and bulkier. He's six foot, 215 pounds. I mean, he's, he's got kind of the build of that guy from, from, from BC who they really struggled against. Um, So, so this is, these are the running backs they're going to face. And just like the kid from Tennessee said, these running backs are going to be drooling when they get a chance to play this defense. So some of that run success that the defense had against North Texas is going to need to show up in this game. Um, And I'm curious to see what Jimbo's game plan is. If he comes in looking to show off his suddenly surging quarterback, he might be doing Missouri a favor instead of if he just leaned on the running game. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested just to see how A&M comes out for this game. I mean, they had, what, 110,000 at Kyle Field, something like right. that. It's going to be half that for an 11 a.m. kickoff at Missouri, a place where no, none of these players have played before because it's that the Aggies haven't played in Columbia since, since 2013. Um, that happened to be a pretty big game for Missouri. But, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting because, also, they've got two conference losses. It's easy to get up for Alabama. Right. What's what is still at stake? I mean, they can win the West, yeah, but Alabama's going to have to lose another game. Um, no one else, you know, Ole Miss is going to have to fall out of the race. Arkansas's, you know, going to have to continue to slip. So I'm just curious if this will be a classic letdown type performance from the Aggies. That they certainly have the talent to win this game handily. Um, their defense is really good. I mean, Demarvin Leal is a D tackle. He's going to cause Missouri some problems. One of their best players this year, Antonio Johnson, nickelback from East St. Louis. He's a guy that Missouri, I think he signed with AM during the coaching change transition. And I don't think Drinkwood's ever really got a chance to recruit him. And he went to uh, AM and has been a really good playmaker for them. So they've got they've got a lot of talent on both sides of the ball. And they've got a quarterback now who seems to have figured it out. And also, interesting St. Louis connection with Calzada. I'm going to write about that this week. Don't want to give it away too much, but he does have ties to uh, to our town. So, um, yeah, it's a test. It really is. But, again, wouldn't shock me if this is a more competitive game than maybe just the average fan thinks because they saw what A&M did last week. Well, the offense, Missouri's offense, will will have a lot to say in that. And I'm curious, you know, we've talked so much about the defense. Like, what this offense has not been perfect. Connor Bazelak has not been perfect. And, you know, I know that you talked with Drinkwitz about this this week, but there are some things at some point that the offense is going to have to do to either take pressure off the defense or simply keep the defense off the field. Um, do you think we're going to see some changes from Drinkwitz in play calling or, or approach that could kind of acknowledge the fact that his defense is in this spot where it really can't be relied upon? I mean, I thought, you know, I don't know how much, how much, uh, you know, stock you put in the North Texas game. like had one of his rougher performances against Tennessee. So this is the first SEC game after that. Um, it would be nice to see the offense be as advertised in one of these heavyweight games here while we continue to put a lot of the focus on the defense. The offense hasn't been uh, exactly beating the door down lately um, right. against good teams. Right. I, ha- I have kind of two conflicting thoughts here. One of them is going to be way wrong. And, and obviously I asked him this week, after half, half of the season, have you really 
figured out what the strengths of this team are? Do you have an identity that you can build on for the second half? Because you kind of go into the season, hey, we're going to try all these things to see who we are. After six games, you should have a, a pretty good idea. And then you can you can kind of scrap what what hasn't worked and lean on what does work. And he did. He made a great point. He's like, we can't be who we aren't at this point. Um, what do they do well? That they run the ball pretty well with Tyler Beatty. Uh, they they catch the ball really cleanly. They've got the best. You know, if you pay attention to the PFF stats, is the it's the best Missouri team in a long time at not dropping the football. They haven't lost a fumble all year because they don't mm-hmm. fumble. Very very good. We're talking nationally good in the red zone. Uh, and on third down. So they handle situations really well. The, the kind that you drill on, the kind you practice and practice, hey, it's a third down drill, it's a red zone drill. Um, they don't hurt themselves too much with, with, uh, with turnovers or negative plays as far as sacks go. And we Tennessee game was, was a bit of an outlier. So I think they control the ball pretty well to the point where maybe this can be a team that plays a little slower plays a possession game like we saw last year against Kentucky. On the other hand, it also you know keeps your defense off the field. On the other hand, I've got a hunch this could be like last year's LSU game where you throw the kitchen sink at them because you have nothing to lose and you try the trick plays, um, you expand the playbook, at least in things you think you can handle, and you go for broke. Uh, because that's when you don't have as much talent as the other team, that's when you break out those plays because they can be huge momentum shifters and whatever crowd Missouri has, that's how you, you know, get the crowd on your side for good. I'd be okay with an expansion of the playbook. I would also be okay with cutting off a few of the plays that are, that are doing a lot of uh, east to west. It seems like yeah. every time that they're getting burned, it's on a play that is very lateral based. Um, you know, get north and south. Take those shots downfield. They've actually, you know, been, been doing that more this year. But some of the, the jet motion reverse stuffs, you know, long drawn out running, running stretch plays to the short side of the field. I think that's good when you have the athletes who can make the plays. I don't know if it's good when you have a more athletic defense that you're facing. Right. Um, and I think sometimes there, there's a little bit uh, maybe too cute of play calling going on. So, um, you know, we'll see. We'll be there on Saturday um, to cover the game, um, you and me in, at, at Memorial Stadium. And, uh, and we'll have a, a chance to maybe get some insight from a professional dog sitter, retired, retired uh, coordinator and coach, Dave Christensen. Yeah, Dave, you said, yeah, it's hard to get him when he's not on the golf course. That's because he's like uh, the dog whisperer now, as uh, folks will hear in, in your conversation <laughs> with, uh, with DC. Let's, uh, let's, let's catch up with DC and see how, how things are going out in Arizona. We're joined now by Dave Christensen. He needs no introduction to uh, Missouri fans that are listening, but we'll, we'll do one anyway. Uh, longtime Missouri offensive coordinator, coached the offensive line, too, from, from 2001, 2008, then went ahead and was Wyoming's head coach for, what was it, a five years, 2009 to 13? Yep. Five and then years. assistant coach at Utah, Texas A&M, and, and most recently Arizona State. And, and now, uh, now he spends a lot of time on the golf course. We're fortunate to get him away from the course today. Dave, how's it going? What What is life like for you these days? Well, uh, life's different. I wake up every Sunday feeling like a million bucks. And uh, I couldn't say that was the case the last 38 years, uh, you know, um, but it, it's, it's great. Uh, you know, I had a, a great career. Uh, I was blessed to be able to, to retire on my own terms. And uh, I did that uh, after our, our last season. 
which was shortened by the pandemic, but uh, spent a lot of time on the golf course, do some work for Callaway, um, spend a lot of time watching college football this time of the year and playing golf. Well, and we, we talked to Dave Steckel about this a couple of weeks ago. How different is it not having carrying that emotional toll with you every weekend where you do, like you mentioned, you wake up Sunday um, and you've either just coming off of a big high or a big low, and then you got to get ready for the next week. Do, do you, is there any part of that you miss or is it nice to just not have to go through that every Sunday in the fall? I, uh, you know, I, I miss game time, yep. you know, I love coaching and competing in the games. I miss the relationships with the players. Um, and then short of that, you know, I'm not missing much right now. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's a very stressful job and, and the wins were never as high as the losses were low. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's a, it's a tough way to, to go through your career, but that's just how it is in football, you know, right. and, you win, it's like, whew, you know, and you lose, and it's like, is to, you know, the sun going to rise tomorrow? I mean, right. you know, the highs and the lows are extreme, but they're much lower when you lose, and they are higher high when you win. Yeah, we'll we'll get to some of those highs. There are a lot more highs and lows in, in your time at Missouri, obviously. But when you're watching the game now, and a little more more of as a, a fan, maybe analyzing a little different. Just how do you feel about the state of the college game right now? I mean, we're what, six, seven weeks into 2021 season. Last year was a, a weird one because of COVID and all that. But what do you what do you like about the game right now? Is there things you don't like as much? Offense is a lot different than maybe when you first got into it. The RPOs have changed everything. Defenses are a little bit different. What? How do you kind of view the game today? Well, well you know, first of all, it's great to see full stadiums. Yeah. You know, yeah. That, we've needed that and, and – you know, it doesn't. It didn't look like Texas A&M and Iowa were concerned about mask regulations or anything <laughs> after the end of those games. So that's exciting to see college football back. At, you know, at that level and the, the level of excitement and, and people engaged again. Uh, so that's been great. The, the game has changed. Uh, you know, there's still elements of up tempo and spread offense and those type of things. Uh, um, you know, it's hard uh, defensively to. Uh, be like Alabama was, you know, maybe six, seven years ago. Yeah. Um, great offenses are scoring against anybody. Um, but, but then you look at, you know, the way Georgia's playing defense. And I think probably maybe the best defensive coordinator in the country is just above you guys at the University of Iowa. And, and, and look what they've done with defense because they don't have any offense. And, uh, and they're 6-0 and and, and second in the country. So there are some teams that are playing some great defense still. Uh, I just think in this day and age, though, you know, back when I was, uh, you know, coaching at Mizzou, you had to have a great defense to win a national title. And having a great offense was, was, was good, but you had to play great defense. Well, now if you don't have a scoring offense, even if you have a great defense, you have to have the ability to come from behind. So you have to be able to score. Yeah. And, everybody is finding ways to score. They're playing with space. They're playing with, you know, great athletes in those spaces. The RPO games is spreading things out. Um, you know, it's forced people like Nick Saban to change a little bit what he's doing athletically, playing, you know, at the linebacker and safety positions. Um, and so the game has changed. But I think, uh, you know, offenses are probably scoring more. I think, you know, the better teams now are not only good on defense, but they have high-powered offenses as well. And I think that's what it takes now to win. Did, did you get into the RPO stuff very much? I mean, it seemed like it came on a little bit later. 
Um, you obviously were right at the forefront of a lot of the no huddle stuff that was happening, you know, around 2005 when you made the switch at Missouri. What, where, where, where was the next step of the evolution? Yeah, so we, we threw a couple RPOs we had um, off of, of our run game, but not to the extent that they're doing them now. Um, yeah. You know, when we were at Wyoming, we, we threw a, a few more, but not a ton more. I got to Utah, we implemented it, you know, more. But I would say in the last five years, that's become a huge part of everybody's offense. Right. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, you, you're going to break some plays out there. I, I still think that, you know, there are some, some, some quarterbacks that would rather throw the RPO because they want to throw the ball than going through a progression of reads and hand the ball off when the ball should be handed off to the tailback. But um, it, the RPO is now, you know, a part of everybody's offense. Everybody has it in their offense and uh, it's certainly a great weapon. It's another way to continue to spread the field. Yeah. I think it's neat too, that you're now seeing maybe the first time in a long time that I can remember the NFL is really borrowing from the college game. Yeah. It, it used to be that stuff that you were doing in 2006 and seven was seemed like a foreign concept to the NFL. They'd never do those things. Now you watch games on Sundays and they look a lot like the games on Saturdays. Absolutely. And I don't watch a ton of NFL, but when I put it on, you know, they're, they're in shotgun, they're running zone read, they got quarterbacks running, they're throwing RPOs. I mean, it used to be anything we were doing in college football wasn't, uh, wasn't good enough for the smarter people in the NFL, but all of a sudden now it's uh, it's interesting to see that they're they're using a lot of the same concepts and and you know a lot of it is you know they're getting those athletes that have been trained in those things also right and so uh, you know they're they're coming with some skill level and, and and have done those things and so it's smart to to, to do that. How do you kind of view this this transfer surge? Um, it's it's changed rosters really quickly. Um, you know you. you the immediate eligibility part's been more of this year, but I'm, I'm sure you saw it with the way the transfer portal opened up. I mean, at, at Arizona State most recently, is it a, as a coach, would you look at it as a op great opportunity or is it more kind of a source of frustration because you, you have to re-recruit your guys all the time or what, how do you look at that? Well, I think from a coaching standpoint, it's, it's a little bit more difficult because yeah. one, you, you do have to re-recruit your guys every year. Okay. Uh, you know, it's, it's, a, we're in a society of, of you know, I call it the little league parent syndrome. If your son's not starting, you go find another team. Yeah. You just keep moving them until you find a team that you can play on instead of, you know, staying in one place and competing and, and earning your opportunity. Um, you know, so it's tough that way. It, it gives some kids opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, you know, if you're a quarterback and you got a great number one in front of you and you're good enough to start, then, you know, I, I see that as a plus that a guy can go somewhere else and start. Um, it doesn't happen with all positions, but it does. I, I had a kid transfer in. He's the left tackle at ASU this year. He's, I think, probably maybe the best left tackle in the Pac-12. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think it's a plus in some ways. I wish they would present the data of the number of kids that had scholarships that went into portal that don't end up getting a scholarship. Yeah. Because they're out. They don't have a way to pay for school anymore. And to me, that's the thing that nobody's talking about. I think it's great that these kids have other opportunities. I'm more concerned about the kid who has that opportunity to have a college scholarship, get his degree, goes in the portal, doesn't find a landing spot, and now has no way to pay for school. Right, right. And you know, our, our, you know, I thought what we were doing is bringing kids to college to get them a college education and along the way play some football. And now it's about find where they can play football 
and then worry about the education. And if it doesn't work out and they're not good enough to play, then, you know, they're punishing the kid by not, you know, because as soon as you go in the portal, they can take your scholarship. Right, right. And, and, and I would venture to guess, and, and I did this before I left ASU, I, I, I took a list of guys that left the program over the last couple of years, and I said to the staff, how many of these guys you want back? And it wasn't a high number. Yeah. Said, Why is it different anywhere else? Right. So the number of guys going in the portal, if there's 2,000 guys going in the portal, I'm going to venture to guess that three to 400 may get a scholarship. The rest of them probably aren't good enough. That's right. Why in the portal. right. Also, too, it seems like as soon as you have some adversity or get benched or replaced, there's almost this expectation immediately. OK, well, he's he's going to transfer. And it almost becomes then the players almost expected to like the Spencer Rattler situation over the weekend. I heard as soon as he goes out of that game, I'm, I'm seeing on social media and kind of hearing uh, around the games like, well, I wonder who he's going to play for next. And. He goes from being the preseason all Big 12 quarterback to just assuming he's going to transfer because he had a, he had an off day. Right. And, and, and again, that's that's what social media has done for us. Yeah. In the past, uh, you know, five, 10 years. Um, I saw the same thing. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm up on Sunday reading about well, where is he going to transfer? Transfer? Why don't you come back and compete? Yeah. Try yeah. that once. See how, right. see how that works. So why don't you go earn your spot back? Right. <laughs> so, and you very, very well. Who, who knows? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I think it's great because it does provide some kids some other opportunities to get into the right situation because it may not be the right situation they're in. But, you know, I'm saying the it's not the majority, it's the minority that it's happening to. Yeah. The majority yeah. are losing an opportunity to get an education, and that's what disappoints me. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about 2007 lately, mainly just because this season nationally is kind of being compared to that year when when – more schools than usual, more programs had an opportunity just because whoever was losing it early in the year. And of course, we know what happened at the end of that regular season with you guys uh, beating that school out to the West in Kansas City for, for a big game. <laughs> but when you think about 07, and first thing that comes to my mind is just all the talent you guys had on offense. And it was a, obviously a special time. But you think about Chase Daniel, Jeremy Macklin, the tight ends, Rucker and Kaufman, all the receivers, Will Franklin, Denaro Alexander, Tommy Saunders, that yeah, a really probably underrated offensive line. Tony Temple, got to throw him in there. When you think about that group and the more that time passes, do you appreciate it more, what they were able to do? Or did you know at the time, hey, this is once in a lifetime type situation? Well, you know, I, I appreciate it more than ever every year as I, you know, had passed by since then because it was the most unselfish high level players I've ever been around. Yeah. You know, I, I never had a, a player ever come to me and say a thing about his touches. It was never brought up. Um, I never went to a practice and ever, and came off the field and go, you know, these guys just don't get it. They won't give it to us today. That was never, the, I would go home and, and you can ask my wife to this day, I, I would say, this is the most fun I've ever had. I got the most unselfish guys that love to practice. I just love being around these guys. Um, it was fun. It, I enjoyed every minute with those kids, but it was because of their attitude. That was it. Yeah, they were great players, but their unselfish attitude and their, you know, they, they cared about one thing and that was the team and the team success. Yeah. And, you know, they were, they were great players and it's just, 
you know, I, I've never been around a group of players like that ever in my career other than, it, 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 you know, Missouri. Where do you think that came from? Because obviously, you know, it, it's, it's hard to get that many guys on the same page at the same time. Did it start with Gary at the top? Was it, was it Chase? Was it just they, they realized that this is the only way this is going to work if we all do this together and don't care about ego and things like that? I constantly talk about cultures of programs. Yeah. Every program is a reflection of the culture that's built there. Every program is. And that was the culture that Gary built. Now, did it happen right away? No. Right. We had to train guys. But, you know, I'm not going to take all the credit for the program doing that to all those kids. Those kids were good kids when we recruited them. Now, that's part of the recruiting process. And, and evaluation, but they were great kids. I, I think there were at times that year that ele- uh, 10 of those 11 kids that started um, were from the state of Missouri. Yeah. I mean, I know all five of my guys up front were. And right. so, you know, were there a bunch of four and five stars? No, but they played better than a bunch of four and five stars. They ended up being better than four and five stars, but they had great attitudes and they were great team players. Yeah. Yeah. Your last year at Missouri, 08. Chases last year. Would, would you have ever thought, thirteen years later, he was he'd be the last one still playing in the league, and have this career that he's had? I mean, he's just had a phenomenal career. You know, every year I just, you know, I'm so happy. I mean, you know, here's a guy who for thirteen years, and I don't know how many games he started in the NFL, but I can promise you this: he's been prepared to be the guy. Yeah. Every game over those thirteen years. Yeah. That guy prepares better than any player I'd ever been around. I know he still does it to this day. And because of that, you know, he can go into any system and just, you know, a matter of a couple of weeks, uh, know it well enough to, to, to win a football game for him. Yeah. And great news is that, you know, I'm sure he's done well financially, uh, yeah. probably extremely healthy. And uh, you know what? He's had a great career. Yeah. Who was the, who do you think was the least talked about great player on that offense? that maybe didn't get enough credit? You know, we were fortunate that we were able to spread the ball around, spread the wealth. You know, everybody got touches. Um, You know, there there were a lot of great players, but I don't think there was any really unsung hero. Uh, Tommy Saunders might not have caught as many balls, but still made a number of plays for us. You had a great impact on it. Um, But all the guys, you know, you know, they, they had so many touches and did so well that I don't know that there was any one guy I can think of that, uh, you know, we had some younger guys at the time, you know, when I was there, Denario really took off probably after I was gone. Yeah. He was coming along then. And, and, you know, and so there were some younger guys coming, you know, and making some progress and getting better. Uh, you know, it, it was a great group of guys. I think they all got, you know, a lot of attention, uh, yeah. you know, guys didn't get enough attention, probably offense line. I mean, <laughs> They never do, right? They're not catching many balls and scoring many touchdowns, but uh, it was a great group to work with. I'm still in touch with a lot of those kids. And uh, um, it was just, you know, overall that team was just a fun group to be around. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You talked about culture and, and something I wanted to ask you, because you, you were a part of a bunch of programs that had to kind of start from scratch. Um, Toledo, you were there at the, the, you know, at the ground level for that, obviously Missouri. And then when you had your own program at Wyoming, Missouri's kind of going through this a little bit, some growing pains in year two under under Drinkwitz. What's what's the hardest thing about starting somewhere from from scratch like that? 
is the ability to turn off the outside noise. Yep. Because it's coming from all directions. And there's no way that you have a chance if you're going to listen to it and, and, and let that play uh, into any decision making that you have or how you're going to do things. You, you've got to be able to eliminate all the outside noise. You know, you remember back when we took over the program, um, we, we weren't winning in year one and two. I mean, yeah. whether, you know, we turned it around in two years. It, it takes some time to, to create a culture, to recruit to a culture, to build a culture. That doesn't mean that there's no players. That's right. not one at all. I mean, um, you may be thin in some areas, but to develop a culture means you're changing the attitudes of everybody within the organization. That does not happen overnight. And so, um, you know, they, you know, fans aren't patient. Right. Right. The next coach and the backup quarterback are always their favorite. And uh, um, that's just the way it is. And so, you know, if you can turn off the outside noise, if the administration can be supportive and understand that it's a process to change yeah. a culture and, and not only are you changing a culture, you've got to build your culture. Right. And it takes time. So, you know, people want to evaluate after every game where the program's at. Well, you know, sit back, support, relax, be patient. It'll happen, but it isn't going to happen if you're changing leadership every three years. Yeah. Yeah. Our, speaking of leadership, are some and you, you got to work for different head coaches who are different personalities a lot too. You think about uh, as, as an assistant, are, are some coaches better at turning off the noise than others? Are, are some, um, have you worked with that were really good at, at getting that message across that everybody bought into it? You know, I, I think it's all in the culture that that guy is building. Yeah. And absolutely. Some are much better than others. Um, you know, Everybody has a culture. They're not all good. Yeah. And yeah. so, you know, I was fortunate to be around Don James. I was fortunate to be around Gary Pinkle. They both were successful at building a culture and getting their players to buy into it. Right. And, and it's because of their consistency. They're, you know, you have to be consistent. And, you know, times change. You got to coach a little bit different. You got to treat kids a little bit different. But the one thing that's never changed is if, if, your player, coach, if your players know you care about them and you instill some discipline in their lives, they're going to react for you and they're going to yeah. do the right things. But I still think in this day and age, people got to be held accountable. And, uh, you know, you can be, you know, a, a great players coach. But that doesn't mean you got to let them, you know, do everything, you know, whatever they want to do. You can still be disciplined. You can still have attention to detail. And at the end of the day, those are the things you're going to win for you. And you're going to be able to change young people's lives. Yeah, yeah. I just saw the other day, and I saw you you were you're interviewed in it. This uh, documentary is coming out on Don James. It looks really cool, and um, obviously we know that you know the influence he had on coaches, starting with with Saban and obviously Gary too. Um, I don't know if the especially in this part of the country, maybe people appreciate his legacy as much Don James it is just because most of it was you know out in Washington. But um, you were around that as a, as a player. What? How should we think of him in a broader context of college football and how important he was to where this game is now, I guess. And just the coaching tree itself is pretty amazing. Yeah. He, uh, you know, he was without a doubt the most influential uh, male figure in my life. And, uh, you know, I had a dad at home and, and, and had great coaches around me, but 
you know, being a walk on that program and, 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 and seeing how he uh, carried himself, how he handled things. Uh, you know, I had a chance to go back and be a graduate assistant there and work with him, have a relationship after that with him. Um, you know, he changed young people's lives. And, uh, he, you know, he, he came in, in an era where <clears throat> there's a lot of grabbing face masks and screaming and yelling and doing those things. That wasn't coach. Yeah. He didn't do that. He wasn't down on the field. He, he, he'd hear from him once in a great while, not very often. He coached the coaches. And uh, so, you know, he, you know, he, I think he was a pioneer in, in, in how to run programs, how to treat young people, yet have great discipline, accountability, attention to detail, and all those things. Uh, you know, he was the CEO of the program. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he lived every day of his life. Uh, as a role model and, and exemplified all the things that you'd want a young man to be. Yeah. Yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I just saw the clips of it. Yeah, I'm excited about it. I, I had a chance to, to have him come down and, and do some interviews with him and it's going to be a great documentary. Awesome. Uh, I wanted to touch on Texas A&M. You spent one year there. Um, what, 2015 with, with Kevin yep. Summer? Uh, really unique place in college football, obviously. It's probably unlike any other place just with the fan base, the, um, stadium, one of the biggest and best. What was that year like just as far as how unique that program is and, and compared to other places you've worked and coached? You know, it, it was the most incredible college football atmosphere I've ever been associated with. Yeah. Fan base is just unbelievably committed. Uh, it's almost in a positive way, cult-like. And, uh, um, but what a great fan base, what great support. Um, everybody's an Aggie down there. Um, the, the facilities are off the chart. I was there where they were rebuilding the stadium. Yeah. And I remember talking to my agent at the time saying, without a doubt, you can win a national championship at Texas A&M. Yeah. It's a great of a place. It's got all the pieces in place. And, uh, you know, and I think they got the right guy in the leadership position there in Jimbo. And, and uh, you know, what a big win uh, for them on Saturday. And, yeah, uh, you know, I think it's going to continue to to be a place that gets better and better. Um, you know, they want for nothing and uh, right. everything's in place. You just got to go in there and, and, and do the job and and uh, you, you should have an opportunity without a doubt to compete for national titles. there. Yeah. What was your, that was your one taste of the SEC as, as a coach on staff? What do you feel like? I guess that was A&M's like fourth year in the league. They'd seem like a natural fit then as far as, you know, the resources and what they were trying to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're a great fit because they can, one, financially they can do it. And yeah. two is they've got a recruiting base. They got the whole state of Texas. They're the only SEC team in that state. And so, you know, and they can recruit outside of Texas. Obviously, they've got a national brand. They're a great fit for the SEC. And, uh, you know, that league is uh, – after spending, you know, the last four years in the Pac-12, I mean, it's it's different, right? In that league, you're in a full stadium every single game, and uh, it's just uh, different type of players. Yeah, yeah. What'd you like about the Pac-12? It was your chance to go back to the league. How different was it at Arizona State after spending, you know, early part of your your life up in Washington? You know, it was fun. I, I really enjoyed my time at uh, Arizona State. Uh, you know, I love being down in the desert. It was great to build to come back and coach in the Pac-12 because I played in the Pac-12. Yeah. 
Um, you know, I think the, the conference might be down just a little bit right now, but, uh, you know, I think they'll, they'll can, you know, they've got new leadership now in, in, in the Pac-12 office, and I think that's, uh, you know, the league's going to continue to get better. But uh, it was great to come back and be able to coach, you know, UCLA and against SC and Washington and go back into the stadiums uh, that I was in as a young man. Yeah. Have you, uh, have you got a chance to see much of Missouri? What are your thoughts on maybe just on Eli Drinkwitz's offense? It's a fairly unique system, and he doesn't have the pieces yet that he, he wants to have eventually to really run it at full go. But what, any, any thoughts on what he's doing there? I've had a chance to, to, to watch him a little bit. You know, there's a lot of games on, and so I get some splits yeah. stuff at home and get a chance to watch him. I think, I think he's got a good scheme uh, on both sides of the ball. You know, I think schematically they're, they've got good schemes. So, you know, it's a matter of getting the right players in place, and that takes time. It's just, you know, you're not going to walk in and automatically have the right players for your scheme. Right. It's going to take some time to recruit, but I think he's doing a good job there. I know they're recruiting well. They're getting good players. You know, obviously the, the you know, the tail of the tape is when they get on the field and perform for you. Right. Absolutely. Well, we'll see what they do this week against the Aggies. It's a, it's a unique week. If you're If you were coaching – Texas A&M a week after a win like that, what is your message to your team? Because you worry about how long are they going to be celebrating? You know, you got to get dialed back in or ready for a conference game. Uh, what's it like in that locker room this week? Do you think just from a coaching well, perspective? I think you're going to, you're going to coach a lot harder than you would uh, probably had to coach going to play Alabama yeah. because they know what they're getting there. You know what I'm saying? And, and so you know, it was always in our philosophy, coach's philosophy, Gary's mine, that, you know, after a big win like that, and you're playing an opponent that's probably not going to be at the same level, you're going to, you're going to coach extremely hard that week. You're going to be on those kids to do every single thing right and, and get their attention uh, daily. Uh, and, uh, you know, just the attention to detail. And, and if they're mature competitors, then, you know, you have to know your team. If you get com mature competitors, uh, you know, then they go out and they perform, you know, Alabama can can win a big game and play a subpar opponent the next week, and they still, you know, play extremely well. And right. that's because they create a culture of competing, no matter who you play. And uh, you know, I think A and M might be one of those teams that's getting close to that themselves. Yeah, you know, it'll it'll be interesting for sure just to see how they how they respond. Well, hey Dave, it was great catching up. Really enjoy it. Uh, get back work on that golf game, and and uh, we'll see you down the road. Awesome. Great talking to you, Dave. Okay, that'll be it for this week's podcast. We want to remind our listeners, please subscribe to Eye on the Tigers podcast if you haven't already. You can find us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. If so, please leave us a comment. We always enjoy your feedback. Special thanks to our guest, Dave Christensen. For Ben Fredrickson, I'm Dave Matter. We'll talk to you next week.